Hi, and welcome to the inaugural Research Ops podcast, an initiative of the Research Ops community. I'm your host for today, Bridget Metzler, and I'm one of the co-chairs of this huge global volunteer-run community. So to start, I'll give you a little introduction. I'm assuming if you're listening, then you might know a little bit about Research Ops, the mechanisms and processes that set user research in motion. If you'd like to know more about Research Ops, you can find us at our website, researchops.community, or on our Medium publication, Research Ops. Follow us at Team Reops on Twitter and join in the conversation at hashtag ResearchOps. So the community itself was founded in March 2018 by Kate Towsey, who subsequently left in, 2000, in uh, December 2018, and it's been run by myself and the guest of today's show, Holly Cole, since then, alongside 11 directors who are leaders and emerging leaders in the field of research or operations. Holly and I recorded this about a month ago when people were still at work and the coronavirus epidemic was just getting started. As it's the first podcast, there are a few glitches in the tech and I hope that you'll forgive that and also allow us to get better as we go along. Here's our chat. Hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome to Research Ops Fireside Chats. Uh, this is the first in a series of chats that we're hoping to make available to um, the Research Ops community. With me today, uh, which is very, very pertinent for the very first fireside chat, is Holly Cole. Holly Cole is, uh, was born in Texas. She dropped out of high school and she was, says she, she was a neo-hippie for a good while. Eventually, she went to the University of North Texas and got a degree in sculpture. She worked in oil and gas and marketing for years, and then she got involved in the Applied Design Research Graduate Program at UNT, and she hasn't looked back. User research was the only thing that didn't get boring for Holly that doesn't get old. People are fascinating, she says, and she never gets tired of watching and observing people interacting with each other. The most valuable information that she says that she could think about herself is a story about an older friend on a fixed income. She grew up with a pen pal in Australia and has always dreamed of visiting. I hope she's going to visit sometime soon because I'm from Australia too. She posted about it online regularly. So she sent her friend there to Australia for six weeks a couple of years ago. She says that she's not a kid from Texas and North Carolina with a huge family. She's not an artist. She's not a research leader who's worked for research teams, product teams, marketing teams and design teams. She's someone who thinks it's important to make dreams come true. And on a personal note, uh, Holly Cole is the co-chair of the Research Ops community and I think she works really hard to make all of our dreams come true. So welcome to the Fireside Chat. Holly, how are you doing today? That's what I'm doing here. I'm making Bridget's dreams come true. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> I'm actually doing wonderfully today. Um, it's It's been a stressful, stressful week, I think. This... Yeah. Uh, this year has been interesting for everyone around the world, but uh, I'm actually having a really good day. How about you? Well, it's very early in the day here uh, and it's people are getting up and, and getting ready for work and all that sort of stuff. So it's a really, it's, it's the start of the day. I'll have to wait and see. So one of the things, <laughs> one of the things I think it's important to add on to um, 
my bio is is something that has been my tagline for a long time. Is oh, yeah. even when I was a researcher, I always said that uh, um, my users weren't the people who use a product or a service. Um, that they, they they weren't even um, you know what what people think of as as common people that you know, user experience and design is centered around. I make things for the people I work with. I make things for designers. I make things for developers. Um, and those are the people that make things for users. So it's always been really important for me to think about how people work at work. Um, as a manager, that's that's been a very um, you know fulfilling change uh, in in my life. I, I like being a people manager, um, and the opportunity to turn facilitating doing good work at work into the point of my career was like that's part of why I moved into the human resources industry was so that I could help people do more work better work get work easier so this is just a natural continuation of things that I'm passionate about so it's probably a good time good thing that this is what I do at work and outside of work and in my free time and for my social life <laughs> it's a passion you are a woman who barely sleeps. Um, <laughs> I think we have that in common. So mm -hmm. I've, I've heard you say that the only, um, the only primary research you do is to research researchers. And yep. I know for myself, um, that's kind of like my litmus test for, am I a research ops person? Uh, if you're a research ops person, then, you know, your, your only primary research is, is researchers. Um, Tell me, tell me a little bit about how you came to have researchers being the people that you research. Part of it was um, working for a consulting company and advising people on how to set up research more effectively in their companies. Um, part of it was the realization that, um, you know, everyone's doing research, whether you want to call it research or not, you're Googling things, you're trying to get access to white papers by uh, Deloitte or something or Gartner um, so that you can make a better decision. Um, so that, that shift was really simple if it's not someone for whom it is their dedicated job it's dedicated as part of their job and that's the part I want to know about and how that helps them do their job it doesn't it doesn't stop with just the research it's it's how you take it out and take action onto it um, so as teams have grown it's been really easy to translate that into hey there's people who are just doing research we'll do research on researchers yeah and so tell me um how did you come to be in the research ops community i can't remember when you joined to be quite honest tell me the uh, story how did you find out about i it? saw i actually um i was involved in the first design ops conference um and i think kate had had run into it somewhere or was on one of the calls and was like why don't we start something for like what i do which is you know small business modeled um facilitating research activities for 
Pictures, and she tweeted about it. And I'm I may have joined on March eighth or March 9th. I was one of the first uh, 20, 30 people in the uh -huh. Okay. Yeah. Because it was like, oh, well, someone is actually thinking about the business of doing research and making the case for the tools that you need and the rigor and the, you know, local state regulations, federal regulations that you have to pay attention to and document and yeah it was just it was it was a community of like minds when a lot of times in the tech world they're very loosey-goosey about how they do research yeah yeah yep. what what was the those early months where um they were pretty great i i love the the calls with the small little bunch of us uh can you what was your favorite bit do you think oh being able to talk nerdy <laughs> like and being able to talk nerdy in a way that uh, I was you know things where I was talking about um, uh, philosophy and how um, philosophical and ethical frameworks apply to the way that people do business and the way that people create things with other people um, and and bringing up words and concepts that I hadn't you know had an opportunity to talk about in a very long time so that it was like uh it was it was a bit of mana for my nerdy nerdy soul <laughs> yeah, to yeah stretch to stretch those sense of blood to those parts of my brain again <laughs> yeah so how about in in your real life um let's talk about let's talk about um who, who was holly cole age 10 uh trouble <laughs> trouble uh -huh. yeah yeah I had definitely already started and not that I wasn't like this to begin with but um my I think my parents there but I think my parents by the time I was talking would have been perfectly happy to have had just the one child because she was enough <laughs> um I was I was in the fifth grade I was uh, wondering why I never had birthday parties and sleepovers um, and finally asked my mother that as an adult and she said because every time we tried to do it you ended up talking to the grown-ups oh. <laughs> and uh, I was spending I was spending almost half my year in North Carolina um, okay what's in North Carolina the rest of my family. Um, I grew up in Texas. My parents are there. My brother, sister-in-law, my nephews are all very insular. They live a third of a mile from each other in Fort Worth, Texas, which is not Dallas. Okay. <laughs> um, which is kind of like now I live in central New Jersey. I do not live in New York City. But the rest of my family um, have been in eastern North Carolina for generations upon generations. Okay. They have, uh, we've, we've done the uh, Ancestry and 23andMe stuff, and we've been there for a while. Cool. And how do you think um, that sort of consistency, um, you know, has that, has that led to, do, has that changed who you are, do you think? Um, my parents decided to, 
stay in Texas after my dad got out of the Air Force so that, you know, when they had kids, there would be some variety and opportunity. I mean, Dallas-Fort Worth is one of the largest metropolitan areas in the United States, but the town where my paternal grandparents lived and, and had their farm that I spent a lot of time at had a population of 200 and something. So I got um, big city and traffic and uh, lots of different languages and uh, everyone knows who you are because the post office was in my grandparents' front bedroom. My grandmother oh, was the postmaster for over 50 years. Wow. Everyone knew who I was. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, been something that I think benefits anyone. I realize that not everyone can live in different places in their lifetime. But if the opportunity ever comes up mm. and you have the opportunity to go and live somewhere else or go and visit somewhere else for a long enough period of time, the way that it changes how you think about the rest of the world, particularly if you're in user research, one of the fields in user research, it will do so much for you as a person and so much for your profession mm. that it's almost invaluable. It is worth the risk. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like you're talking to me. <laughs> um, I've, I've always lived in the one well, place. I, everyone should. It's, yeah. It would. It would. It would be of service to. I can't think of anyone that it would not benefit them. So. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, so let's talk about how did you? So we've we've got um, young Holly, who everyone knows uh, at the local at the local post office. Uh, yep. You went to school, then you went to university. So talk to me about your, you know, your path. How does what does that look like? Oh wow. I mean, I worked in oil and gas, like digital data. I, um, I, uh, I quit high school, um, if I'm perfectly honest, because I was smoking too much pot. I mean, I got a lot of my fun out when I was <laughs> young. And I think that that's, uh, that's going to serve me well, because the older I get, the more my body hurts. And the more I think I don't want to go windsurfing when I'm 60. Um, <laughs> and I was mad actually when I took the GED freshman and not actually put up with going to school. <laughs> Nothing bad about school. I love school. I, I loved college university more than I could ever express in words. Um, it's that talk nerdy to me moment. I miss that yeah. desperately. Um, but then I, you know, spent some time traveling around and I lived in a school bus and lived outside in South Texas for six weeks every summer. I did a lot of interesting things and kind of came to the fact that once I feel like I learn and understand something, um, I'm, I'm done. I'm, it's time to move on and learn something new. Yep. Um, this has never gotten old because you are even being in the uh, human resources industry for the past four years. It's the context of 
every problem and uh, every organization is is so different and well, that doesn't get old yeah it doesn't get old yeah that's interesting I I, f- I find the same I, I always feel like I'm kind of racing against um my focus moving on that you know suddenly I'll just not be interested anymore um mm-hmm. but I found this to be absolutely um magnetic in terms of um how much I I can I want to focus on it um and I think be, yeah the same for the same reason because whatever you're doing is always you know there's always more to learn so how about um so now you're you're you've got a new and uh, recently got a new job and that's really very focused on well it's a leadership uh position but you're also uh an ops leader as well mm-hmm. how what are the challenges do you think for research ops as it's embedded in organizations um it's it's also one of the challenges for poor research which is the cross-functional partnerships you have to develop um, partially because especially in technology so much of it is um, based around services and tools and that you know you may not have an entire team of, of dedicated researchers you may just have a few and then it's part of somebody's job so making it is to entry very low, making the experience of doing research um, easy and quick and painless, and that it generates a lot of value for the person um, endeavoring through it, uh, even if it's not something they really want to do or are comfortable doing. Um, It's, you have to develop partnerships with not just legal and not just product function does being a researcher does Mm. you have to develop partnerships with tools and customer service you need to understand how um in the united states how tools like salesforce work you need to understand a level of of not just what is useful in a a looker or chart mogul dashboard. You actually have to understand how uh, a data scientist generates that stuff. You need yeah. to under yeah. You need to understand and campaign marketing management tools um, so that you can have intelligent conversations and compromises with those people and those departments to find solutions that benefit you as well Mm -hmm. Um, so you're really bringing together i see i've seen this visual recently where um, research ops is actually the ops that sits in the middle of devops and design and business because of our focus around tools and the types of data that we are responsible for the governance of. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, development 
it's it's IP, it's intellectual property to the company. Um, design has elements of a little bit of both. Business, a lot of times, those are processes that are pretty standardized in almost any company, you know. Um, yep. And we sit in the middle. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it reminds me of something that actually is, it's my mother's favorite poem by her favorite poet, Robert Frost. Mm. Uh, it's very short. So, um, we dance around in a ring and suppose, but the secret sits in the middle and knows. like we're the secret to unlocking all of that cross-functional partnerships and we just need to get to that point um, with those relationships with the other departments where um, you know it's not a secret anymore where we are working openly (laughs) and transparently and cooperatively with all of these people and processes Mm -hmm. and that everyone is invited in yeah Um, but in a way that protects people's So we we dance the line between intellectual property, data privacy, and aggregate data. Yeah. What do you think makes that more of research? Why why is research ops in the centre and not design ops and not um, any of the other ops? Why is it so, why are we so central, do you think? Um, Part of that, like I said, is like with DevOps, that's that's a company's intellectual property a lot of the time, how they implement their code and the peculiarities of how they are uh, functionally supporting it. Um, GNA is pretty standardized processes and all they're really doing is protecting people's PII. Design in its creative endeavors have unique needs but what's created out of it um, typically is intellectual property as well, um, either individual or the company's intellectual property. Yeah. The thing is, none of those um, have a lot of similar overlap. The tools yeah. for design that are maintained by design ops professionals, it's a it's the only thing that's that's common is uh, the business's procurement policy, which is actually a GNA policy, a general yeah. and administrative policy. Yeah. Um, those. That's the only thing that's common is is those things. Yeah. And each one of those departments, if you were going to include both, um, they aren't adopting any of the processes of, of GNA or, and they don't have to account for, you know, those standardized processes, but we do. Totally. It's like, yep. we, that's the stuff we live. So what do you think? Um, it sounds to me, you know, that we've, we've talked a lot about the democratization of research and that's sort of one of those central um, sort of tenets of, of, you know, what ops is all about. What do you think are the the risks of introducing ops? What are the things we need to be careful of? Uh, is there anything you've come across that you you think people should know? Unnecessary complexity. Yes, yeah. because it you as a leader 
the business may want a certain or your department may want a certain level of complexity in a tool and it is your responsibility to push back and say hey that me as the person who's researching the research process and researchers no we do not need we can plan for that if we ever need it yeah but to introduce that complexity now increase and they like that's a level of effort that increases risk to a point that the value return isn't there yeah so i mean and i'm going to talk about this soon i don't works for you because of the size of your company and who is doing research and how people are looking for the research that has been done yeah if a folder structure works for that don't go buy a tool yeah it's folders yeah. yeah it's different contexts for different different organizations yeah. definitely yeah. yeah so one of the risks then if i'm hearing you right is um sort of not not understanding your own context enough and trying to implement somebody else's ops? Yes. Um, and not understanding, it's not just the context of your research, but the context of the way your the business works. Totally. Yeah. 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 So how about the opportunities? What are the, what are the, what's the good things for you? What's made it worthwhile? Hmm. Helping people do better more rigorous work that I hope we are providing tools to them where they can take it to um, you know any situation where they might be oh this is too much or, or they can't actually develop those cross-functional partnerships yeah. I hope desperately if we're not providing tools for that we're at least providing a space for you to ask the question or find some answers yeah um, to help people do this job better right yeah yeah and um, so research ops of late i've been seeing you've probably seen me have a little rant on twitter about um about mm -hmm. people just hiring one one ops person um yeah. tell me tell me what do you think about where ops fits in in an organization does it matter um yes it does it does i do think that if you want to hire a or you feel as as if you're a research or designer product leader or jobs person because you have a recruitment problem or because you have a um, research reports problem um the solution is not to hire an ops person, <laughs> mainly yeah. because those are those could be two different jobs, and we get into that whole complexity issue. You're adding complexity that you don't need. Yeah. Um, I hiring someone to something for you, and a single person to do it is not always the right way to go and nesting it inside a function that has very unique um, operational processes like design 
can be problematic just from the tools standpoint. Um, yeah, we're all procuring things in the same way because we all have to go through finance for that. Yeah. But the, um, for a design system update are not the same as the processes for approval to surface a um, invitation to a survey as an intercept inside a platform that is churning human resources data. They're not the same. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So uh, what do you think uh, user research can do that we maybe don't realize? Is there, is there anything, any, any untapped gold that you can think of? <laughs> well, the user research as a whole, like doing good user research. I oh, think yeah. That, that, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, just doing, doing good re user research as an industry as a whole has a, um, a lot of companies, smaller companies, make the mistake of thinking, oh, you know, we need a UX researcher because we have UX design. We need dedicated to, um, you know, supporting our designers doing that. Um, and I, I would hazard that when that happens, you don't hire someone who's going to do research for your design team. The person you want to hire is someone who's going to do research on your internal organization and educate your design team on how to do their own research. Right. That is a successful first hire that's not a leader, yeah, not a manager. Yeah. yeah. But a lot of companies make the mistake of hiring a single IC to do research. And there's so many things that that person has to have. Yeah. Tools and availability-wise and their actual research efforts as a formally trained researcher have so much more value helping that smaller company understand their people. Yeah. And then just advising and consulting and educating on good research practices. If I owned a company and I was going to hire a use a researcher because the UX designers were overwhelmed, that's the person I would hire. Yeah. So researcher okay. internal processes and then support the education and up-leveling of the UX designers, product designers. Okay. So we're coming up to the end of our time. Um, yeah. It's been... Which uh, makes me sad because I always love talking to you. We don't uh, talk enough. We, well, we don't, we don't talk enough. We're going to make a weekly chat, right? Let's, let's well, yes. do that. Not necessarily. It's not like the old days where you just like phone people and on the phone for three hours which I don't like doing like I did in high school but I would totally like call you every night and just like talk yeah I used to do that in high school every too. morning for you <laughs> <laughs> yeah time is a problem um so is there anything that you wanted to wanted to say any anything you wanted to say to the community or to anyone who's listening it's <clears throat> weird for me to be the first one of these but I think you know yeah. and that I do think of, of, um, of you and I as a, a really good almost like a the CEO COO pair um, 
there's I'm I'm much happier kind of like working in the back. <laughs> yeah, but I'm getting better. Like, I'm getting better. I'm getting better about it. I'm getting better about it. So yeah. Yeah, uh, I think can it's... certainly reach out to me. Okay. All right. Yeah. Actively reach out like you do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an in, I'm I'm an introvert, and I don't want to argue about whether or not there's introverts or or extroverts or ambiverts. I'm someone who very much charges up, not even by being alone, but by not talking. Yeah. And that's my entire job is talking to people. Yeah. So end of the day, (laughs) texting and messaging online was the best thing that ever happened to me. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. The the internet is the best thing that ever happened to me. (laughs) I'm the same. Yep. Um, So feel free to reach out to me. I just, uh, I'm not a, I'm not a really like, hyper reachy social person yeah don't be afraid i do reply back you know there's one thing i didn't ask you that we that i should cover because you are the co-chair of the research ops community um where do you think you see you know research ops we just turned to where do you think you see us in two years time (sighs) truthfully i I couldn't answer this question but you go (laughs) i think with the things that we're doing and um, the things that we continue to do, even though they are overwhelmingly exhausting, the things that we have done already say to me that this is large enough for a professional organization. And while that may not be exclusively people who only do operations, um, Epic is something that I belong to and I'm not, ethnographic anthropologist but the resources from that have been invaluable for me yeah this is a resource that could be invaluable to people so it's professional community we're already doing all this formal work yeah yeah that makes sense Mm -hmm. all right holly uh thank you so much for your time um i'm sure we'll have another chat again real soon um thank you and i guess i'll say uh thanks and and goodbye for now (laughs) see you later forever (laughs) and that brings us to the end of today's chat if you enjoyed today's podcast and want to hear more please subscribe or join us in the research ops community if there's someone you'd like us to talk to please drop us a line at teamreops at gmail.com our next show i've already recorded it's another exciting one with mr richard smith from hackney city council in the uk He and I are on opposite sides of the world and have the same job. We lead, both lead user research libraries. Richard is a member of the Research Ops community and we have a chat about his experiences and his thoughts on ops. We also have a chat about whether or not ops fits uh, beside or underneath research and we talk about the challenges of doing ops when it isn't your dedicated job. So that should be on next month. quite sure when it's a volunteer run thing so we'll definitely put it out on twitter when uh, when we get that done and uh hope to see you along uh next time at the research ops podcast thanks bye